we, when we're in the fourth series, fourth week of this series we're calling The Almost, which again is this expression of the way the world was supposed to be and the way the world will become again when Jesus is there. But it's every once in a while we see a breakthrough in the miracles of Jesus, particularly we see a clarity in that. And, and there's this anticipation that comes from The Almost. We anticipate that anything can and will happen. Because we're not bound by the same restrictions of those who don't believe in God and don't believe that, they are, that there's another world out there for us. Um, we live differently. We have an anticipation and an, and an expectation that God will move. And some of you have lived this and experienced it. In fact, some of you would even say that you have had miracles happen in your life. And some of you certainly hope and pray that miracles will, will visit, be visited on you as well. But if that's the case, there's a few things. We have to, we have to ask the question, what do you do if God does move? Because it's almost scarier if God does move in your life than if he doesn't move in your life. Again, you've heard me say this before. Oftentimes Christians function as a Agnostics, not expecting God to move in our lives at all. And then when he does, we're almost caught unawares. We're not sure of how we should function. So I've got four things that we need to think about if you believe that God is moving in your life and you feel like there's miracles that are happening. The very first thing you have to do is that you have to ask what this thing that's happening to you what does it say about God? Because miracles are not about you. Miracles are about revealing God to the world through you and how things happen. So, um, so, so what does it say about God if it's happening to you? Secondly, is there a purpose in it for your life? As we study the miracles of Jesus, one of the things we recognize is that almost to a person, every time something happens, they immediately go and tell the world. They use it as a tool for witness. So if this is happening, Happened to you? Have you used it as a tool for witness or not? How can you use this miracle to show others who God is and what he's revealing through you? The third thing is this. What does or has that miracle motivated in your life? Now, this is important, right? More compassion, more grace, more witness. But if the fruit of the miracle that you had is rotten, was it even a miracle at all? If it led you towards a more selfish outlook in life, if it moves you towards conceit, because now God is working with you and you exclusively, if it has moved you towards arrogance because God has done this. These are not fruits of the Spirit as outlined to us in Galatians 5.22. So if the fruit is not good, was it even a miracle at all? Or was it good luck that you interpreted as God's favor and maybe misinterpreted? For you. Number four, how did this miracle restore or reconcile you? Because the purpose of almost every single miracle that we see in Scripture, nay, every miracle that we see in Scripture, I would say, is a reconciliation to either the community, to the world, to the church, to our families. What reconciliation and restoration happened for you in your life because of this miracle? Every miracle story is a story of reconciliation. So how did that play out in your life? That's just some tools that we can have if we feel like God is moving in our lives. We're going to jump into two stories today and only finish one of them. And these two stories are stories you're probably familiar with. They come from Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We'll be reading from the New Living Translation. As you know, you can read from whatever translation you'd like. And if you're at home, BibleGateway.com is always a great website to go and look stuff up. So we're starting in Mark chapter 5. Verse 21, it says this, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side 
side of the lake. If you remember what's happening, um, we, he, he just got kicked out of the garrison area because he had put the pigs, if you remember, he put the pigs into the sea and nobody was happy about that. So they were like, could you please leave? And he said, yes, I will leave. So he gets back in the boat and goes to the other side of the lake. This is context. It feels like it's happening a lot, doesn't it? Kind of nothing to see here. He's in a boat, there's a crowd, um, and, and there's a lake. No big deal. There's a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. But now it gets interesting because through this crowd breaks through a man. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He submitted himself. Now listen, importance doesn't do that. When, when you're very important, you have a hard time submitting yourself. You've heard me say this before. If you see a man in a suit running, follow him. Because men in suits don't run by and large. They have no reason. They're very important. They have position. They have status. They're not, and if they're running, go. In our 9 a.m. service, there's a judge who comes. And, um, and I said, if I see you, judge, in your robe running, I'm going to go wherever you go. <laughs> and he laughed and said, yeah, you probably should. Um, so, so that's the thing. It's, it's, when you're important, you don't necessarily submit yourself that easily. But this man, Jarius, does it. It says he was one of the leaders in the local synagogue. It doesn't say he was the chief leader. Every once in a while, it's interpreted that way. It doesn't actually say that. It says he was one of the leaders, which is fine. But moving on, 523, pleading fervently with him, being Jesus, he says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. Now, there's a couple things going on here that's very interesting. First of all, we love our kids. We do anything for our kids, and Jairus was no different, right? Of course, you're going you're gonna to supplicate yourself, submit yourself to anything. But he's kind of directive with Jesus, isn't he? He's like, hey, this is what I need you to do. I need you to come over. I need you to lay hands on, and he'll be fine. It's a little much, but that's how it is with people who have position, right? Let me explain to you how you're going to do this. And, and, you know, but what it's really important is this. In front of Jesus, we're all the same, right? In front of Jesus, we, we kneel down and we recognize that Jesus is the great equalizer. We all see our sin. We all see our need. We all see his love. And it takes a while to get there. And in fact, Scripture actually says that it's difficult for a wealthy person to go into heaven. Why? Because they feel like they have so much to lose. But when you're in this kind of desperate strait, Jairus realized he had nothing to lose. He just needed to supplicate himself in front of Jesus for his daughter. And so he decides to do that. Mark 5, 24, Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. Well, why wouldn't he go? Jesus is a good guy. But right in the middle of this, we see another story unfolding. I like to call this the miracle story inception. Like four people in this room have seen that movie. Right, inception was like a dream within a dream within a dream, or was it? Right, remember at the end, the top spins, and you're like, whoa! And you're watching all those credits go by like they're going to tell us something. And then they never do. And you know what? Even more than that, we're not even going to finish this series. Um, we're not going to finish this story today, so we have to go to tomorrow. So it's actually a series inside a series. It's a series inception. <laughs> I was so excited when I figured that out. But that's what happens. When you write a sermon alone in your office, you, you're like, that's so clever. And then you say it, and you go, oh, that's stupid. So thank you for, for um, bearing with me. So we're not going to finish this story. We're going to move into a new story. But it's important to note that these two things happen together, right? In, in Mark 5, 25, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years from constant bleeding. They sometimes call this story the woman with the issue of blood, right? She was um, constantly bleeding. And 
it's a familiar story, but we're going to take a look at it with a little bit of a different twist, hopefully. But her context is difficult. She's bleeding. She's ostracized from society. She wouldn't have been allowed in the town. Anyone who had touched her would have been sent outside of the town until the night. She wouldn't have been able to go to the temple. This is all having to do with Leviticus 15 and the health laws having to do with blood. And, and, and the author decides, Mark decides he's going to tell us a little bit more about this woman, which is great, in 526. He said, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. Now, if you're a physician, I'm sorry, but you heard what she just said. <laughs> suffered from many doctors. I'm sure that's not the case now. But back then, sometimes the cure was worth, worse than the disease, right? You're going to put leeches? That sounds great. You're gonna, you, know, you got a headache? We're going to bore a hole in your head and let out the evil demons. Not great health care. And, and she had spent everything she had to pay them. And she'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. It's not unheard of. In fact, the word that is used, and I don't quote Greek a great deal. I allude to it. I don't actually put the word up. I'm going to put the word up. The word that is used is mastix. And it's a Greek word meaning to be whipped or lashed, to be scourged, to be, to be tormented. It combines physical suffering and actual shame. And in fact, it's really akin to the idea of punishment. So she wasn't just sick, she was punished for being sick. That's how much she suffered. What we realize is this, her prospects are no better than Jairus' daughter. Mark 5, 27, she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. Now, this is fascinating. Jairus walked up to Jesus, and the crowd parted, and he walked right up to Jesus from the front. This woman goes from the back. Right? She wouldn't have been able to touch anyone, so anyone would have touched her would have been banished outside. She had to creep through the crowd, and she touches his robe. Now, people used to do this to those with influence, clout, or celebrity. In fact, there's early historians that talk about Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great would, would take over a country or take over a town, he would find himself walking through town, and there would be throngs of people around him reaching out to touch him. It's so glad that we don't have a celebrity culture that does that anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, people don't change. It doesn't matter if it's 3,000 years ago or if it's like yesterday. Right? I, remember, I remember watching this, um, this interview with John Lennon before um, he was shot. And he used to walk around through Central Park by himself when he lived in New York. And, you know, arguably one of the most famous people on the planet. And he would walk through, and the same thing would happen. People would throng to him, and they would reach out and try and touch him. And he got very kind of comfortable with that. But the interviewer said, how is it that you, being John Lennon, can walk through Central Park? And he said, it's okay as long as I keep walking. He said, the moment that I stop, I'm thronged. I can't get around it. It's very disconcerting. It's actually very frightening. He said, but as long as I can just continue to put one foot in front of the other, for some reason, everybody kind of respects that. Well, not everybody. As we know, he, you know, he got shot out there, which is unfortunate. But this is something that happened, right? So, and Jesus always had a lot of people around him. But what, the reason why she did it is that she thought, if I can just touch his robe... I'm going to be healed. Now, this could have been an ancient kind of, you know, mystical understanding, but I think it had more to do with faith. Immediately, as Mark likes to say, Mark likes to say everything happened immediately. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Because you got to remember, if she's been bleeding for 12 years, she's probably been having incredible abdominal pain and cramps and those sorts of things for the last 12 years. So immediately, she realizes she doesn't have that anymore. 
But immediately is never immediately. Immediately is never immediately because you got to remember, there was a process in which she finally was at Jesus' robe. It started by the fact that she heard about Jesus. Who did she hear about Jesus from? We don't actually know, but it was probably from the testimony of others that had been healed. It piqued her curiosity and it piqued her hope. So she heard about Jesus. Then the woman came to Jesus, and that would have been, you know, that would have been a bit of an, of, a, of an undertaking because she would have had to figure out where he was and be where he was when he needed to. You know, he had left to go see the garrison demoniac and then he turns around and he comes back and she's waiting for him in a crowd of people who wouldn't have wanted her to be there. There's a lot of preparation that would have had to happen. And then she's there and she's in a crowd and she's working her way through and the woman touches Jesus. So she heard, then she came to see, and then she touched him. You see, she was involved in what we call the conversion process. So while immediately she was healed, the process to get there took a long time. And let me tell you why this is important. Our next series coming up is called, the, is called Awakening. And it's our Easter series. And if you've been at Crosswalk for any amount of time, you know that Easter, not only do we like to do it up, we like to make a call for people to be baptized. But we don't do that out of nothing. It's not like this immediate, I just, oh, randomly feel like, oh, let me just, does anybody want to be baptized? What we do is we help you prepare them. And so we put a series guide together for this. We just got it done. I should be going to the printer next week. Um, we put a series guide together written so that you can ask some specific questions for somebody who's moving along in that journey towards baptism. And then what we love it is we love to be able to baptize somebody who's been studying with you and you stand right there next to them as they're being baptized. So is it an immediate decision to be baptized? Absolutely. But is it a long conversion process to get there? Absolutely. It's slowly, then immediately. Her process to be healed did not happen overnight. It was slow. There's no such thing as an overnight sensation. It's something that takes years to happen. Conversion is the slow process of the Holy Spirit until one is saved immediately as they accept Jesus Christ into their heart. Jumping back into the story, because now something interesting happens. Jesus realizes at once, again, same word essentially for immediately. Jesus realizes at once that the healing power had gone out of him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? Jesus felt something. But it's more than that, because his willingness to recognize that an unclean person had touched him is very amazing. I mean, the, the, the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan wouldn't have done that, but Jesus is willing to do it. Her touch does not create a reprimand, whether it creates a question for her to answer. Jesus says, who touched my robe? Now, what does it mean when Jesus asks a question? Have you ever thought about that? Because the truth is, Jesus doesn't really need to ask a lot of questions. Why? Because Jesus is God, and he knows a lot. Right? I mean, I'm pretty sure. Jesus says, who touched my robe? Why in the world would he need to do that? In fact, we, every time God asks a question, something's coming up. In Genesis 3, we actually see God asking one of the first questions. It's fascinating. The fall had happened, and it says this in Genesis 3, verse 8. When the cool of the evening breezes were blowing... The man and his wife, Adam and Eve, heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then God called to the man, where are you? That's the dumbest question on the planet for a couple reasons, right? First of all, he's God, he knows. Second of all, we are now in the midst of the very first game of hide and seek. It's never happened before. Right, so we're in the midst of the very first game of hide-and-seek. And have you ever played hide-and-seek with a toddler who's never played it before? 
That's what they do. And they think you can't see them. So, I mean, I don't know if Adam and Eve were doing that or they were trying to hide behind a tree. Either way, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous situation, isn't it? God comes down and goes, Adam, where are you? No, you see, what was happening is God was giving him an opportunity to respond. God never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. But when he asks you a question, it means he wants you to respond. Has Jesus asked you a question lately? And how are the opportunities for grace in your life? That question in Genesis 3 is the first expression of grace that we see. Because he goes, hey, come here. And you know how the story goes, right? That story is crazy because he says, hey, Adam and Eve, where'd you go? And then they, they, then they continue to throw each other under the bus. Right? They're just horrible. Adam's like, that woman. And she's like, that snake that you made. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that to God. That's a bad move. In fact, if you want to know if it's a good move or not, if you still live at home and you have parents and you steal a cookie and you're in trouble for it, just go, you bought the cookies? <laughs> See how that goes. It's a horrible idea. See, the thing is, when Jesus asks a question, it's because he wants you to respond. He's giving you an opportunity for grace. So when he says, who touched my robe, he's not just saying, hey, I don't know what's going on here. And in fact, the disciples, the disciples, like they always do, they misconstrue this, right? His disciples said to him, look at the crowd that is pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? How dumb are they? I mean, seriously, he had just, well, let, let's, let's go through the last like 48 hours of his life. He just got off a boat where he was on the other side where he sent demons out of a man and put them into, into pigs and they all died. That's a big, that's a big one. That's a pretty big one. But right before that, he was on a boat that was in a storm and he stands up and he goes, peace be still. And the disciples still don't get it. They're like, how can he know? How can he know that somebody touched him? What's the problem with the disciples? Why do the disciples always underestimate the power and knowledge of Jesus? How come they didn't expect more? And do we do the same thing? I mean, I think our expectations are actually pretty low of what God's going to do in our lives. We don't, maybe it's because we don't want to be disappointed. And if we don't have expectations, we won't be saddened when they don't happen. I mean, are people happier when they have no expectations? Is an interesting point. In 2019, Finland is the happiest country of the year. And it's argued that the reason why the Finnish are so happy is that they don't expect anything to happen. Right? They live in a country that's dark three months out of the year. And then another three months of the year, the sun never goes down. It's exhausting. Right? There's, it's snow. It's... They have this high population of non-religious, non-believing people who have a tendency to be relatively happy. At least that's what it's argued on the happiness scale. And the reason why is because they don't think anything's ever going to work out. And then when it does, they're kind of surprised and happy. It's like, oh, I thought that was going to suck. It wasn't too bad. All right. <laughs> right? Americans are horrible because we have great expectations. Right? We're always like, this is going to be amazing, and then it's not. And so we're always depressed. And if you don't think that's true, think back to the last 4th of July, because this happens with fireworks programs all the time. Because in a fireworks program, the only thing you do the whole time is go, is that the end? Is it over now? Was that the, was that the finale? Is that it? It's over? And then the finale happens, and you go, oh, it's over. <laughs> right? We're always, we're always feeling bad because our expectations are so high. 
Just for the record, Finland has one of the highest suicide rates too. So that's interesting. But listen, expectations can lead to disappointment. And disappointment can lead to unbelief when it's disappointment in God. So the question we have to ask is, is your belief contingent on your expectation? Is your belief contingent on what you get? Is your belief contingent on your expectations being fulfilled? Because isn't that a little shallow? I'll believe in God as long as he gets me what I want or does what I think he should. Where's the trust that transcends our circumstances? I mean, you remember Paul in the book of Philippians saying, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine. Regardless of my situation, I'm fine. Can your faith transcend your disappointment? And that's a real question. Can we still believe even when things don't work out the way we want them to? If faith is contingent on things working out in our way, is it even faith at all? Because faith is really the thing that gets you through those disappointments. Faith is the thing that carries us and transcends us through those situations that are deeply difficult for us. And this woman, she reached out in a touch of faith. This is a touch with an intention of expectation. The intention was not to steal his power by any means, but to experience the healing that comes from being in proximity to Jesus. So the question we ask you today is, what is your proximity to Jesus? Because there's healing in that touch. There is hope in that proximity. There is a powerful opportunity to change our perspective when we choose to live close to the source, no matter what our circumstances are. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we think that if things aren't going well, God's not blessing us. Why is blessing and faith, like why, does, why is blessing only contingent on things working out our way too? Maybe you're the most blessed when you're in the most trouble. Maybe you're the most blessed when things are working out poorly for you. Maybe your faith is strongest when your world is falling apart. Blessing isn't everything okay. Blessing is the presence of God in your life, regardless of what happens. So the disciples say this to Jesus. They're like, how can you know? But, but he kept looking around, it says in Mark 5.32, but he kept looking around to see who had done it. Jesus wasn't deterred. He was not content to just simply dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. You see, because in the kingdom of God, miracles lead to meetings. Because God wants to know you. Miracles lead to meetings. Discipleship is not just getting our needs met. It's not even just getting healed. It is being in the presence of Jesus for a prolonged and profound amount of time. It's being known by him and following him, being faithful to him and obedient to him. Mark 5.33, then the frightened woman, trembling, at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she has done. Boy, she did the same thing that Jairus did, huh? Except she didn't tell Jesus what to do. He did. She was so used to abuse, this woman, that she threw herself down looking for mercy and compassion after the healing, even though it had already happened. And maybe even willing to take some punishment for the healing that had just happened to her. But what she got was incredibly different. What she got, she wasn't expecting. Because Jesus looks at her 
And he says this. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering's over. Yeah. Now, now we've encountered, we've encountered that text and, and we think immediately, man, man, I would love to have that kind of faith that could make me well. You're missing the point of this text, right? And you've probably thought about that your whole life. It's the faith that's the important part of the text. You want to know what the important part of this text is? That's important. Don't get me wrong. Faith is important. You want to know what the real important part of that text is? He called her daughter. He didn't say that to anybody else in all of Scripture. Nowhere else in all the Gospels is this particular term used by Jesus. No one else gets called by this name. Is this a connection to the daughter of Jairus? Very possibly, and we'll find out more next week. But he looks at this woman, and the apex of this story is not the healing. It's not the faith that she had. The apex of this story is that he said, daughter, you're mine. When was the last time you were called daughter, son, child of God? By calling her daughter, he affirmed her faith. He confirmed her healing. And he sealed her place in the kingdom of God. So what you got to understand today is this. You have been affirmed too. You have been confirmed in your faith of Jesus. And you have been sealed into the kingdom of God. The same thing that happened to her has happened to you today as well because of the grace and love and compassion of Jesus Christ. You have the same access. In the crowd and chaos, there is healing, there is recognition, there is affirmation, confirmation, and a setting of placement into the kingdom of God for you by Jesus. And the only thing you have to do is reach out and touch his robe. That's all you have to do is recognize that you are in proximity to the king of kings, to the king of the universe, and all you need to do is reach out and touch his robe. And then he's going to look around and he's going to say, hey, what happened? Who did that? Which is an opportunity to meet Jesus on a personal level. It's an opportunity to, to understand who he is, to start a conversation. She went down because she didn't know what was going to happen. We know what's going to happen. He's going to accept us. He's going to bring us into his family. He's going to talk to us. He's going to do the miraculous and continue to do the miraculous in our lives. You have been affirmed, confirmed, and sealed into the kingdom, just as she was. It's amazing. And we're not even finished with this story because we've got a whole nother piece that we have to take care of next week. So you got to come to church again next week. Thanks for that. I don't know how many congregations clap that they get to come to church next week. You guys are awesome. Listen, this story, it reminds me of a few things. Number one, that God is still working. And so we should never have low expectations of what God is going to do in our lives. Don't undersell God. Don't sell him short in your life. Number two, whether you're of high status whether you're low status, it doesn't matter. We're all the same in front of Jesus, recognizing that we need his healing in our lives. And the third thing is this, the story's not over because your story is a story inside of a story. 
that God is continuing to tell and unfold. And it's amazing to wait and see where it goes and you get to live in. So this journey that God has you on, this movement that God is making you a part of, man, there's something there. It's important. It's amazing. I'm glad we're doing it together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Jesus, your grace, man, I, I can't talk about it enough. Your willingness to heal. Lord, may we never have low expectations. May we expect the most because you are the most. Lord, may we, may we live in the hope that you will still move. And may we live our lives with the touch of faith, a touch that has the intention of expectation, that you will do something. And Lord, may we never confuse everything working out for blessing. May we understand that we're blessed even in the worst of it because we live close to you. Pray these things in your holy name, Lord. Amen.